continue to make our way through Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, right now, and we'll pick up at verse 43. We'll be reading verses 43 through 45 this morning. We're coming close to the end of Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Plain. He finishes in Luke's record with uh, two metaphors, one horticultural or dendrological for you purists, uh, having to do with trees, and uh, the other having to do with architecture. I will tell you that it was after no small struggle that I <clears throat> decided to take these two metaphors up uh, separately over this Lord's Day and next. Uh, these metaphors of the Lord are so rich, they're certainly worthy of pausing to consider uh, separately. So this week, uh, trees and fruit. Next week, the Lord willing, houses and foundations. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we acknowledge again to you, as we did at the beginning of our worship, and that is true of all of our lives, that we must have your Holy Spirit uh, ruling and directing our hearts. Now, particularly, we ask for his work of opening our hearts to your word and granting us ears to hear your voice in the reading and in the preaching of it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 6.43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, you don't have to be a skilled horticulturist, horticulturalist or even dendrologist uh, to understand what Jesus is saying here about fruit and trees. His meaning is plain enough. Good trees bear good fruit, bad ones bad. A healthy, strong tree bears fruit that's useful and beautiful and delicious. A scrawny tree, weak and compromised, will generally produce fruit in keeping with its condition. You can go and pick apples at your local orchard, and you'll see that Jesus' metaphor is entirely true. What is more, one of the easiest ways that you can identify a tree, in case Elder Thomas isn't standing there, uh, is to look at the kind of fruit that's hanging on its branches. If you go to Reed's Orchard, uh, a specific time of the year and walk up to a tree and find its branches heavy laden with round red fruit, you can be fairly certain that you found your way to the apple section. Uh, conversely, you would not walk up to a thorn bush expecting to find figs. Fig trees bear frig, figs and thorn bushes bear, well, thorns. But Jesus was not delivering a lesson in horticulture. He was teaching lessons about people. People are like trees, at least in this sense. What they bear, 
The fruit that you find on them tells the story about what they are on the inside. If you want to identify a specific kind of tree, you look at the type of fruit. If you want to find a good tree, you take a look at the quality of its fruits. Similarly, the fruit of a person's life, his deeds, her actions, they tell the tale about that person's heart and character. If you, if you find rotten fruit on the outside, it is the indication of internal rot and rottenness. And where you find good fruit, it tends to indicate inner spiritual health. Words, too, like deeds, show what's on the inside. Because, of course, what we say from our mouths first springs from our hearts. What comes pouring over the tongue originates first in the heart. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Some of you may remember a movie character saying that his mother once told him that stupid is as stupid does. And that was sort of a funny twist and a well-known phrase, but Jesus is speaking more Straightforwardly here, he's saying, basically, good is as good does. And evil is as evil does. You know a good person or evil by what he or she does or says. If you'll forgive another aphorism, you may not be able to judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a tree by its fruit. You can know a person by his deeds, by her words. This is particularly the case when it comes to a person's spiritual nature, or what we sometimes call his religion. Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, conduct is the great test of character. Words are one great symptom of the condition of the heart. Other commentaries make the same point differently. Riken, in his commentary, says the reason we say things that we say and do the things we do is because we are the people we are. Another says simply, our speech betrays us. But what is it that has brought Jesus to this point? You know, why, why is he comparing people to trees anyway? Oh, we know that he's, he's not just speaking randomly. Jesus was not in the habit of being incoherent uh, in his thinking or his teaching. And the writers of Scripture have not been uh, random either in their recording of Jesus' words. There's a relationship between what he's saying here about trees and fruit, uh, mouths and hearts, and what he has said before. We know that, if for no other reason than that he links what he says here to what he said before with one little word that we translate in the English at the beginning there of verse 43, for. 
Jesus is continuing the message, you see. The word for connects what he's saying here with what he's just said. But then the question is this, what precisely is he linking this to? You know, is he linking this to what he's just said about specks and logs in eyes, which we read last week? Or is he going back even further to no disciple being above his master in verse 40? That's often the difficulty you see in interpreting scripture and understanding it, uh, linking it to context. And in this particular case, linking this thought to the preceding context. And to help answer that question, uh, especially when you're in the Gospels, it's never unreasonable to ask what another Gospel writer did with these particular words of Jesus. And happily, I can report that Jesus did teach the same thing, use the same metaphor, in fact, in another sermon, in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records it, and in that context, Jesus is speaking about true and false prophets. You distinguish one from another, he says, in that sermon. You tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet by their fruits. That is, by their deeds, by their lives. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says in Matthew, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, he says, by their fruits. So it's not difficult to imagine then coming back to Luke here that Jesus is linking this matter of good fruit from good trees and bad from bad with teachers and ministers and all those who in one way or another act as representatives of God in one capacity or another. If, as Jesus said back in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher... Why, you will want to be very careful, won't you, about under whom you place yourself. You'll want a teacher, a leader, uh, an elder, a pastor who is a good tree who bears good fruit. Since Jesus says, or uh, you'll inevitably be like him. Even more to the point, Jesus says, or rather asks rhetorically back in verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Here's the point at this point, brothers and sisters. Before you place yourself under the teaching and oversight of a leader, you will do well, best you can, to check his fruit. If what he does does not match up to what he says, if his life is full of rotten fruit, bad deeds, his mouth full of bad language, he's not to be followed. He is, as the Bible says, a false prophet. There's a church in Kiltern in Scotland with a stone near the entrance that reads, This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here. That's the idea. An ungodly man is not to be followed. I quoted from J.C. Ryle earlier, and now I will again, based on Jesus' teaching here. He goes so far as to warn us 
about the silliness so prevalent in our own day, in our own thinking and speaking about people who are outwardly only evil in their behavior, as if they were certainly just good people in their hearts who've made a few mistakes. Let it be a settled principle, he writes, that when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart and that although men are living wickedly, they've got good hearts at bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? Then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. When a man's tongue is generally wrong, it is absurd, no less than unscriptural, to say that his heart is right. Surely Bishop Ryle is correct. When Jesus said, as we heard last week, judge not, he certainly didn't intend for us simply to bury our heads in the sand and remain unwilling to call a spade a spade. Particularly when it comes to choosing what teachers we will sit under. And he did not mean for us to act and to live as though everyone in the world is basically good in their hearts. Jesus himself made it clear again and again and again, particularly in his interaction with the Pharisees, that there are people in the world who destroy others' faith, who lay heavy burdens on them, indeed, who lead people by the hand into hell itself. Not because they're good people, a little bit mistaken, but because on the inside, in their hearts, they are, as Jesus said, full of dead man's bones. Now that certainly seems a reasonable answer to the question we asked a few moments ago, how what Jesus has here relates to what he said before, how he links them together. But there is a more immediate application Jesus has, after all, just finished saying that before helping our brother with his speck, his little sin in his eye, first we need to deal with the log in our own. Before we aid someone else to repent of their sin, first we need to repent of our own, confess and have forgiven by God our own unrighteousness, our own sins. For, Jesus continues, there's no good tree that produces bad fruit, and so on. In other words, Jesus is sending us back now to ourselves. Back to examine our own lives. Back to ask ourselves about our own fruit. Whether good or bad. Or maybe non-existent. And especially what those fruits or non-fruits or bad fruits have to say about our hearts. Am I a good tree? Or am I a bad tree? Am I producing good fruit or bad fruit? Am I like the, the bramble, the, the briar, 
uh, that bears no fruit at all, at all like, or like the thorn bush. And considering my fruit, what does it say about my root? What does it say about, in other words, my heart? It's a question we'll all do well to ask ourselves this morning and honestly answer. What, what kind of tree am I? Well, think about this. What, what, what kind of deeds are you known for? Are you known for your patience or for your temper? Are you known for your love or for your incredible ability to nurse a grudge? Are you known for your kindness or for your propensity to fight and to enter conflict? Are you known for your joy or for your anger and your sullenness? Are you known for bearing fruits of gentleness or abrasiveness? Think uh, peaches or prickly pears. If yours is a reputation for self-control or is it for indulgence of your appetites and your passions? What kind of words come out of your mouths? And what do those words say about your heart from which they must rise? Now immediately I find myself in a pastoral dilemma. My dilemma is this. I know that even as I preach such things as fidelity to Christ requires me to preach, there are some of you here who are immediately almost instantly downtrodden and defeated by a, by a list of questions like that because you're very, very sensitive to your own failures and shortcomings. You know, acutely you know your failings and you are quick to identify your own bad fruits. You have little or no eye for your own good fruits because you focus so quickly on a few bad ones. And a sermon like this causes you to wonder, could I possibly be a good tree? On the other hand, there are those who are totally oblivious to your own bad fruits. You come through a set of questions like I just asked totally, completely unscathed because you really don't think you have any bad fruits. And even if you do spot a bad fruit here or there, you just label them raisins. <laughs> Not really bad fruits, especially compared with what you consider to be your good fruits. And not really even so bad in themselves once you've justified them. Yes, you throw your temper, but you really do so out of just motivations, you know. You're pretty abrasive, but that's only because your grandparents came from the old country. You bear prickly pears. Sure, but you know, even prickly pears have edible parts. I don't know quite frankly what to do about this, this uh, dilemma, this pastoral dilemma, because the more I try 
to break some hearers from their false confidence, the more I rattle the fragile hearts of the spiritually sensitive. And the more I try to comfort the meek, I fear, the more comfortable I make the ones who need just the opposite. And so I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit, which of course is what we always do, have to do, to speak to you just what you need to hear as I finish with these few basic points. First, don't deceive yourself. In this matter of fruit and tree, of words and heart, don't deceive yourself. If you are a person whose life is full of bad fruit, who love to sin and break God's commandments, who have no regard for others, not really, not any more than you pay lip service to have anyway, as long as your purpose is served, as long as things in the end turn your way, you measure all things against your own welfare, or if your life just really doesn't show any fruit, no real genuine acts of love for others, no real regard for the things of God, no love for his worship, no desire to serve him above all, no matter what that means for you, then I say again, don't deceive yourself. There's a fixed principle of spiritual horticulture that says you can tell the root from looking at the fruit. If you're not bearing fruit or if your fruit is rotten, then something is terribly wrong with your root, with your heart. If your language is filled with wickedness, you love dirty talk, you love gossiping about others, running others down, then it indicates your heart is bad. And if your heart is bad, then you're in terrible danger of suffering in this life and even more terrifyingly, the rest of eternity. Don't deceive yourselves. I will come back to you in just a moment, but I want to say to the rest of you this. Uh, Second, don't defeat yourselves. Some of you are thinking right now about that bad word you said last week. And you're remembering how you hated that, that other person you really did And how your heart keeps wandering back and wants to wander back to those feelings. You're remembering that moment of impatience with your children when you raised your voice unnecessarily. You remember that harsh word. You remember a very unloving thought. You're saying to yourself, I must have a bad heart. The only thing worse For you to imagine is is what that must mean for the rest of eternity for you. Please, please don't defeat yourself. The best Christians still fail. The most faithful and the most ardent of disciples nevertheless even deny their very Lord in moments of weakness. Though you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, though you're forgiven, though you've been given a new heart, a heart of flesh in exchange for your heart of stone, you still struggle with the effects of the fall and of your own fallenness. And precisely because you have that kind of a heart, a heart so sensitive to your lingering sins, a heart that 
hates even what it still does sometimes or, or fails to do. Like even the great apostle Paul, near the end of his godly life and ministry, cries out, what a wretched man I am. I say precisely because you have that kind of heart, you can hardly see your own good fruits. The love that you've shown in actions to others. The joy that you've brought to someone else's life by just a simple compliment or touch of the hand. The peace you've brought into your children's lives by your calm confidence in the Lord in one situation or another. That act of mercy, that deed of love, that word kindly spoken. You don't see those. Instead, you stand aghast at how badly you have failed at several points this week, even this morning. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, don't defeat yourselves. Don't be discouraged. And indeed, let me say just the opposite. Be encouraged this morning. For the fact is, if you did not have a good heart, you wouldn't even care about those failings. You'd be too busy thinking about how good you are or justifying your sins away instead of repenting of them as you're doing right now. Don't be discouraged. So I've given you two don'ts. Don't deceive yourselves and don't defeat yourselves. Let me finish on a positive. Do throw yourself on God's grace. I mean both of you. You you who would deceive yourselves into thinking you have a good heart when you really don't. And those of you who have a good heart but tend to think it bad. All of you now throw yourself on the grace of God. I say that because of the tendency for all of us who have been touched this morning by what we've just heard. We'll naturally turn now and do what? What what are we going to tend to do? What are we going to want to do now? Naturally. Work really hard to turn over a new leaf, right? Well, the only problem is that days from now or a month from now, Or a year from now, having tried and tried and tried with all of our might to turn over a new leaf, we'll find that what we have is really just the same old leaf upside down. The fruit, Jesus says, is the indication of the heart. Now you can glue apples to an evergreen tree at Christmas time. But eventually, that will be made plain to all that it certainly was no apple tree. And and you can do a few things that look good. Everybody can. The most wicked person in the world can produce some wax fruit on his branches by trying really, really hard. But that's not what we need. What we need is real fruit. And to have real fruit, what we need is a new root. We need to be made new in root and branch. We need to be renewed from the inside out, beginning with the heart. Only this is the problem. None of us can change our hearts. We can't do it, no matter how hard we try. 
So here's the happy news. Though you cannot change your own heart, there is someone who can. The Holy Spirit. Those of you with bad hearts can have new ones by the Holy Spirit. Just ask the Lord to give it to you. And those of you with good hearts yet mixed with remaining sin, ask the Lord for more. More help, more forgiveness, more sanctification, more purification, more of his grace to sweep what's left of the old nature right out of our hearts. It's true, of course, that good fruit indicates a good heart, but a good heart can only come by God's grace, by God's Spirit living within it, reigning over it, renewing it, refreshing it, with fresh supplies of his power. God, by your grace, renew our roots so that we may bear good fruit. Amen.